This is the last message in this sermon series on revolution, and we are in Luke chapter 10. And as I was uh, looking at this passage, I was reminded there's a phase that children go through where they ask the why question incessantly. Right? If you're a parent, you, you've navigated this probably. You say, come on, Johnny, we're going to go to the store. I say, why? Because we're out of food. Why? Because we ate it all. Why? Because we were hungry. Why? Right? And, and I could keep going on, but you know that this, this conversation, this banter goes on generally until they ask a question that you can't answer or you just get tired and you say something like, because I said so, that's why. Now let's play the quiet game. Who can be quiet the longest? Right? Well, I used this why question uh, when I was launching Fence Post 1. Some of you may remember that. I made this, this premise that um, we all have a set of beliefs, uh, a set of assumptions about life that we can't justify. We just, they're just self-evident to us. And I, I framed this in a conversation with, with a college student. Where you, why are you taking philosophy? Well, to satisfy a humanities requirement. Well, why do you want to satisfy a humanities requirement? In order to graduate. Why do you want to graduate? So I can get a job. Well, why do you want a job? So I'll get money. Well, why do you want money? So I can buy stuff. Well, why do you want to buy stuff? So I'll be happy. Well, why do you want to be happy? Right? And that conversation stops there because... It's self-evident, right? I've said because I want to be happy. And it's just assumed by many people that that's a a given. Now, in Fence Post 1, I then sort of turned and and we had this exploration of, of what philosophers call epistemology. How do we know things? Why do we believe what we believe? But today I want to stay on that uh, because I want to be happy idea. I want to talk about happiness or joy. And just for the record, I'm going to use these terms as if they're interchangeable. I realize there's some daylight between them. We generally understand joy to be a little bit more robust. It's a little bit less about circumstances. It's, it's more tied into who we are or a life rightly lived. Or, or as Christ followers, we recognize that joy is one of, the, one of the maturing qualities that should be evident in our life because of a relationship with God. I get that there's a difference between happiness and joy, but I want to use them as if they're synonyms. And I want to just acknowledge um, that joy can be elusive, especially if you live in Chicago with the weather and the traffic and the Bears still have Jay Cutler and and Derek Rose is injured again and and, uh, Patrick Kane is injured. And so uh, it can be... It can be challenging uh, to find joy. But uh, that is the promise that we have in the text today. The promise we find is that joy is possible. Not down the line, right? When I get this promotion, or when I, I, I get married, or when we have kids, or when the kids leave, or when I retire, or, or when something else happens, then I will know joy. But the promise we find 
in Scripture. What Jesus is going to talk about is, is joy now. And uh, that's, a, that's a great opportunity. And so we're going to look at that. I just um, I want to let you know this passage is, is a difficult one. Uh, as a matter of fact, as I started working on this message, I asked myself the question, well, why exactly? Did I go visit my mom last week and give Siler the fun passage about, you know, launching the 72, and I took this passage. I could have visited my mom this week and given Siler this passage about evil and scorpions and confusing statements. But uh, Siler did a great job. Uh, I was struck by two things as I was listening to his message. One of them is... uh, the debt of gratitude that I owe and that you owe uh, to the obedience of the 72, right? So remember, in Luke 9, Jesus sends the 12 out. This is what starts the revolution. That was my sort of metaphor here, that, that when Jesus sends out the 12 to begin proclaiming the good news and engaging in good works, advancing the kingdom, when Jesus does that, this all goes to a completely different dimension. And, uh, but it was a difficult time for the 12. When he launches the 72, it just shows how aggressive he's going to be. And, uh, and it just struck me that these 72 went out in a difficult setting. And because they do, they told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone, right? Who told someone who told someone who told you, who told me about God's love and the offer of eternal life. And uh, they were faithful in passing off the baton, and that baton is in our hands now. So I, I was struck by that, and I was also struck with the, with the realization that today the church is often simply trying to play defense and to hold on. And we're, we're not designed to play defense, right? We just, that, that's not our assignment We're told that the gates of hell cannot withstand the onslaught of people who are advancing the kingdom, right? We don't fear the gates of hell. The gates of hell are a defensive, uh, you know, a defensive position because Satan is on the defensive. We're supposed to be on the offensive. And so I was was just motivated coming out of that, uh, that treatment that Siler gave us. Today, we're, we're pushing on into, uh, into the rest of this uh, discussion, the 12 come back, or excuse me, the 72 come back. So I'm going to begin reading now. We'll walk through this. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So you have to understand the 72 did not expect things to go well for them. Right? So the 12, the A team had gone out earlier. It had not gone well. They'd gone toe to toe with, with evil and they had blinked. And so it had been rough. And when Jesus sent the 72 out, he said, he talked a lot about evil and about suffering and how they weren't going to have a lot to eat. And uh, he said, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. So lambs could say, I'm sending you out as wolf food uh, among the wolves. It was a pretty bleak commissioning that they got. So they were not expecting this to go well, but they went out, and it did go well. And they're all excited, and they say, Jesus, you can't, you're not going to believe 
What happened when we were out there? Even the demons submitted to us in your name. Now, if you've been, just, if you've been on a short-term mission trip at some point, chances are you have some understanding of how excited they are. Because generally on those trips, right, they're arranged so that you're going to get pushed. You're going you're gonna to be put, put in situations that uh, are th- you're going to be asked to do things there that you don't do here. And it's a safer place to go do some of those things. And you're going to be, you're going to have to rely on God. And you're going to pray more and you're going to work more. And there's just, there's, there's an energy that comes out of all that. They're catalytic events. And that's what's happening here. And by the way, if you haven't been on a short-term mission trip, then I would just really uh, say, why not? Uh, we, we had two teams come back this week. Uh, a team that was over in India working uh, working with uh, children at risk uh, through our HBI partner there. We had another uh, group come back from Turkey uh, working with the Robleses, our partners there working with Muslim refugees in Turkey. Uh, this week we got a team headed out to uh, Gallup, New Mexico family trip, going to work with uh, impoverished uh, Zuni Indian children. Uh, we got another trip coming up going to Kuve, the the, in Ghana, where we were building that school, right? And so we just have these trips happening on an ongoing basis. All those trips are going to happen again next year. We've also got a women's trip going to Kathmandu, Nepal, to work with women at risk for sex trafficking. These are revolutionary times where you get pushed and you grow. And so um, I would commend those to you. So the, the 72 come back. They're all excited about things. They say this to Jesus. And um, his response is, is a little bit um, confusing. Verse 18, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, we're not given a really comprehensive uh, treatise on evil in the Bible. right? There's this there's just little statements here or there, and we try to patch all this together, but it's a little bit confusing, and we end up with a lot of questions that we don't have answers for. But we know enough to know that this statement by Jesus is, is figurative. Okay? Satan's fall, right? the advent of evil, all that happens way before this. So what, what Christ is saying here, they come back and he says... You know, while you were out there, I sensed a change in the momentum, right? Things began to turn. I guess this is, we could say this is like the last couple minutes of the Georgia State-Baylor game. Suddenly, everything was starting to move in a different direction. And uh, so, so Jesus is, is commending them, and he's excited uh, about what's going on. As more people got in the game, began to serve, began to love, became ambassadors of grace and mercy, started talking about who I am, started talking about God's love for them, he says, I could just feel the momentum change. And so that's uh, a very good thing. However, verse 20, however... Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this is this is uh, the second time the word joy has come up 
Uh, it comes up in verse 17 where they come back, the 72 come back with joy. Here he talks about their joy. In the next verse, we're going to have this statement that Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So this, this theme just keeps coming up. And uh, what we're told here, if we stop and think about it, we're given very specific counsel from God about how we can have joy. And um, what we're told is that we need to cultivate an eternal perspective, right? That our, our view needs to go beyond the, the present horizon. We need to look beyond the grave. We need to look into heaven and, and have this settled confidence that whatever is happening in this broken world, it's going to end well. Because Christ has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. <laughs> and we're going to live forever in a world that works, where God's will is done, where there's love and grace and mercy. Right? That, that's coming, and, and that's going to be forever. And so whatever happens now in this broken world, this world isn't evil. God created this world and said it was good, but it's broken and it's a battle zone, and it's been, it's been infiltrated by sin, and sin has gone everywhere, even into our own hearts. And so it's not what it should be. And, and we face trials and sicknesses and cancer and stroke and marriages unravel and people get fired, and there's all kinds of... There's just, it's a broken world. And the circumstances are not always good. But what we're being told here by uh, Christ is that we, we can have joy if we can have that ability to look beyond the struggles that we're facing now into what is coming. Because that changes everything. Eternity changes everything. And we have to have that eternal perspective. Things, you know what, things may be going well for you right now. And if they are, that's wonderful. Right? That's great. But as I, as this whole broken series brought up, at some point, they won't be. Because this world is broken. If we live long enough, we're going to suffer. We're going to get knocked down. Things are not going to work the way we want them to work. And we're not told otherwise, but we are told by God that we can rejoice if we can fix our gaze on something beyond the present horizon. Some people think that this is the land of the living, and then we head, after we die, to the land of the dying. That's exactly backwards. This is the land of the dying, but we will go to the land of the living. And um, eternity changes everything. Reading on, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, okay, so again, God exists eternally, one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and a big part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us grow, to mature us. And part of the gift that, that happens as we yield more and more of our life to God is joy. It's, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we're being told here that Jesus has joy. Now, again, it's not 
Jesus does not have joy because things are working out. Okay? He doesn't have joy because of his circumstances. He started his, ro- his march to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. He's going to be tortured. He's going to suffer and die. He's going to be betrayed. His joy is not because of his circumstances. His joy comes out of his relationship with the Father. At that time, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, at that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Two important things to note here, just briefly. One is, uh, it sure looks like Jesus moves seamlessly into times of prayer. He's having a conversation with folks, and we've got no, no transition statement. It's just all of a sudden Jesus is praying. And, uh, and, and the disciples are just about to ask him to teach them. They watch Jesus, and then the question they're going to ask Jesus is not, how did you walk? How do you walk on water, right? How do you, how do you multiply food? What they ask is, how do you pray, right? Teach us how to pray. We're gonna head into it. That's that's sort of what's next up. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then uh, Easter, and then uh, I'm gonna we're gonna do a series, a little brief series called Talking with God, and uh, it's gonna be on prayer. So if you have questions about prayer, please send them to me. I've been working on that series. I'm excited about it. We see. We see that Jesus is, uh, is a man of prayer. The second thing um, about this passage that I need to, to mention here is that it, it's confusing again. It, it, it also it doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Just as this idea that Jesus looked up and saw Satan falling from heaven didn't really mean that. It was a metaphor. This um, doesn't mean what a lot of people try and make it mean, and that is that we should avoid uh, education. Remarkably, there are people who look at this passage. Uh, Father, you have, we, 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 I praise you because you've hidden these things from the wise and Lord and, and revealed them to children. And also a passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where he talks about God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. There are some people that look at these things and then say, you know, it's wrong to learn. It's, higher education in particular tends to come under the crosshairs of this. It's bad. We don't, we don't need education. We just need God. And uh, there's, there's a lot of people who are pretty passionate about this. So just in the margin, let me say, I, I worked as a college pastor for eight years, and then I spent 10 years ministering to college pastors. So I feel like I know the challenges of higher education as well as most people do. And they go way beyond skyrocketing tuition. I mean, there, there, is, a, there is an attitude in many uh, state schools in particular, uh, private uh, non-Christian schools. There is, a, there is a, uh, uh, an anti-God bias that often seeps out. And I remember, you know, I'd get called in when I was on a state university on staff at a church, working at a state university, and occasionally I get called in by the dean, and and the dean would say, "Now I understand you're going to be speaking in some dorm uh, tonight, and I just want to be sure that what you say is going to be neutral." <laughs> and I I would say, "Yes, I am speaking in a dorm," and and what 
possibly could you mean by neutral? I mean, I, how could I say something is neutral? Well, everything has to be balanced. Every, the other views have to be represented. I said, I have no idea how to do that. And you understand, don't you, that this idea that every idea has to be presented and that they all have to be given equal value, that idea, that's not neutral. That's its own position. Right? That's called relativism. And it's crazy. And it's actually self-defeating because you are suggesting that you're certain that nobody can be certain about what the right views are. Do you not understand that, that, that that's nonsensical? If, if I just confused you, uh, I do a bad job of explaining this. I never was able to explain it to them. And so it was very frustrating. I get that there's problems with higher education. I get that there's problems with worldviews that, that can be challenging to some of the things that we hold dear. But please understand, Christ tells us to love God with our mind, right? Our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Paul is going to say that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And, and the things that Paul teaches assume that we're going to be thoughtful people, right? Who are going to develop our ability to think. What is being, what, what Jesus is, is saying here when he says, I praise you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and, and learned it. It's a, it's a difficult passage, but he's talking about the Pharisees there. He's talking about the self-importance. Uh, intellectually arrogant people. And he's saying, and you reveal them to little children. And the goal about being like a little child is not to be childish. It's to have a childlike trust that we see that little children have with their parents. And we're being encouraged to have that kind of an attitude uh, towards God. Reading on, verse 22. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Okay, another confusing passage, but, but just a lot there. Just see this in large part as another piece of the argument that Luke is presenting in answer to the question that Herod Agrippa asks at the beginning of chapter 9. And really, this is, this is the whole essence of what Luke's gospel is. He's writing to Theophilus to persuade Theophilus, uh, or to confirm with Theophilus, that Jesus Christ is God. Right? He tells us that's what he's doing. And, and then in, in Luke chapter 9, when the 12 go out, it's rough for them, but they set some things in motion. It gets back to Herod Agrippa, and Herod is asked the question, who is this Jesus that is instigating this, right? Uh, who is this man? I thought I killed him. I, I killed this guy named John the Baptist. Who's this? And so then Luke systematically is answering the big question, who is Jesus? Right? It was big then, it's bigger now because we know that Jesus is the most significant person who ever lived. Right? He's influenced more people than anyone else who has ever lived. More books have been written about Jesus than anybody else. Right? The, the, the number of people who pledge their allegiance to Christ eclipses anyone else. So we know that the question, who ultimately is Jesus, is a remarkably important question. And Luke has just been building this case. After Agrippa asks it, 
the first thing we see is he, he shows Jesus feeding the 5,000. Supernaturally demonstrating his power and his compassion. And then the next thing up is, is Peter's confession. Jesus asked, who, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus affirms that. And then the next thing up is the transfiguration, right? Where, where Jesus is revealed in his glory. And then the next thing up is Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man, which is not, right, Jesus being humble and not claiming the title Son of God. He's just going to talk about being Son of Man. Son of Man, when you look at it in context, Daniel chapter 9, the Son of Man is the one to whom every knee will bow. All power and glory will be given. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the one. That everybody is going to bow down and serve. And then we have Jesus demonstrating his power over evil, right? These are just all answers to this question. And now here, the sixth sort of piece of the argument. Jesus says, no one knows God like I know God. And no one can know God except through me. I mean, this is, this is huge. Though in, in the Bible... The, the idea of knowing is, is a very holistic idea. It says, for instance, in, in Genesis, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Right? And now, it's, it's, they don't use the word know because oh, everybody's embarrassed about sex. God is ashamed. He's a prude. And so he doesn't want to talk about sex. So he uses this euphemism, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. It's talking about this incredibly profound, deep connection relational intimacy. And Jesus says, I know the Father. <laughs> and, and, and just in the fact that he would say, I know the Father, I know God, that would be shocking. In that context to say, I know the Father, is, I mean, they, the Jews don't know what to do with this. Right? Nobody talked about God being Father until Jesus comes along. And he's going to use that in the prayer here coming up very shortly. But before that, Jesus was understood to be the father of the nation of Israel. But nobody called him father, like Jesus is suggesting here. And, and Jesus will occasionally, uh, will occasionally not just use the word father, but he will use the word Abba, right? He'll say, no one knows my dad like I do. And I mean, the Jews won't even mention the name of God. They're so, they're so worried. He's so holy and distant. And here Jesus is saying, um, I, I know dad. <laughs> I know my dad. I know, I know my daddy. And nobody knows him like I know him. And nobody can know him except through me. Right? This is another big, bold, exclusive claim that Jesus makes. Finally, in verse 23, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they did not see it. To hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Now, um, here's, here's what Christ is saying. You know, for generations, people have been waiting for me to show up. Generation after generation, it's been a couple thousand years that people have really been wondering when I'm going to show up. The prophets, they, they were talking about me. That stuff that Micah said about born in Bethlehem, yeah, that, 
that's me. Stuff that Isaiah said, you know, about dying, well, that's, that's going to be me. The stuff that, that, that Jeremiah talked about, it's, it's me. The Passover lamb, pointing to me. Sacrificial system, all about me. It's about me. I'm the one. And you are here at the time that I've showed up. You're really fortunate. That's what he's saying to the disciples. It's really quite remarkable. You're in an amazing position because people have been waiting for me for a long, long time. Now, uh, there are some ways in which our position, 2,000 years later, is more privileged than the disciples' position. But it requires us to keep a few ideas front and center. Namely, uh, that our names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Right. So, let's just step back from all of this. Um, there, is, there is gold in this passage if we, if we focus on it. There's a lot to think about here. What we're getting is counsel from God about how to have joy. And, and there's a lot of people out there seeking happiness and joy. Right? In a whole lot of different ways. And, and a whole lot of ways that don't work. Right? And, and there's, a, there's, sort of a, there's sort of a comprehensive answer being given here that joy comes out of a relationship with God. It comes out of a life rightly lived. It's the byproduct of a life rightly lived. The, the, there's a lot of people that, that go right after happiness, right? Directly. What makes me happy, I'm going after that. And uh, this, this is what, what the Greeks did, what the hedonists did. And uh, <laughs> you know, philosophy, by and large, designed to help us live the good life. And it is. Comprehensively, philosophy is sort of a failed experiment. We're 3,000 years into people trying to think their way into the good life. And we can't get philosophers to agree on much. I mean, there's all these different schools and all these different ideas, and we, what we know a lot from philosophy is what doesn't work. Hedonism, for instance, doesn't work. The, the hedonist said, I'm going after pleasure, and that usually meant sensual pleasure, right? I'm going right after what I like. But guess what? <laughs> it breaks down when you do that. I mean, I'll just say, if, if you say, I like chocolate cake, all I'm going to eat is chocolate cake. Well... At some point, you don't like chocolate cake, right? It just doesn't work that way. Joy is the byproduct of a relationship with God and a life rightly lived. And, and it's, it's not always what we would think. Some people think, you know what, I'll be happy. I'll be joyful when, people, when more people serve me. Then I'll know joy. And Jesus says, no, actually quite the opposite. If you serve, you'll know joy. People think, I'll be happy when I, when I get revenge for the people, for this person who did me wrong. And Jesus says, no, no, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Right? It's, just, it's, it's a very different path forward to the things that we want. Uh, so, what we're told here is that joy, happiness comes 
from the assurance that we have of, of a life ahead that will work. And so as, as we close, I'm gonna, I want to let you have some assurance that uh, life ahead for you will work. And there's lots of lists out there that, that are bad or neutral. I mean, you don't want to be on the IRS list. You don't want to be on a spam list. You know, you don't want to be on the school detention list. I mean, there's lists you don't want to be on. You want to be on this list of your name in heaven, the Lamb's Book of Life. And so uh, the basic message uh, of, of the Christian faith is that we don't reach up. God reaches down. Uh, but God loves you enough to give you uh, a choice, and so you have options. But Christ came to do many things among them, to die in your place, and uh, to be a Christ follower, you embrace that. You, you confess. You recognize that you're broken, that your heart is not what it could be, that you failed in many ways, and that you need a, a rescuer. And you recognize additionally that Jesus is that one, that he's, you know, he is the one who knows the Father. He is, he is the one radiant in his glory. He is the Messiah, the, the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. And you say, I'm in. Um, and so as I close in prayer, I'm going to give you a, a chance to say, I'm in. Uh, I, I want in. And I'm not going to ask you to stand or raise your hand. I will say that you need to tell somebody before you leave this morning. But I'm going to pray for all of us. And then if at some point, um, if when I get to this point, you want to make this prayer your own, I invite you to do that. So, Father, we uh, acknowledge and confess that uh, we chase after a lot of things, hoping that they will bring us joy. And often... uh, lose sight of the things that really work and really matter. And that we don't, um, even those of us who have stepped over the line are not always running hard after you and, uh, and living a, right, a life rightly ordered. So we confess that and, and pray for that joy and that, that understanding that eternity changes everything and, a, and, and a, an ability, a more of a commitment to focus on who you are and what awaits us, and to use that as ballast against any of the trials and strong winds of, of this world. And Father, I want to pray for those um, who are just waking up to who you are and how much you love them and what you offer. And uh, so I want to say to those of you who are here, if you don't know Christ, I invite you to pray in your heart something like these words. Father, I want you. Uh, I, realize that I, am, I realize that I'm a sinner, that I've made um, sort of a mess of a lot of things, and I realize what I ultimately was designed for and need is a relationship with you. So I, I thank you for sending your son. Jesus, I thank you for dying in my place. I want to follow. I want to be one of your disciples. I want to, I want to march after you and pray to that end. So I I accept you. I receive you. Um, Thank you for coming into my life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.